Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. My friend Joe always wanted to be a photographer. His brother bought him a 35mm camera, a Canon AE-1 programme, for his 15th birthday, and Joe would buy rolls of film for it from my dad's chemist shop in Finglas. Joe studied photography at Rathmines College after his leaving cert, but, as for most graduates in the 1980s, work was thin on the ground. In 1990, he left for New York to work as a builder in the glass and steel canyons of Manhattan. Sharing a house in Sunnyside, Queens, Joe would get up at 5am to take the subway to the financial district. He lifted and carried, mixed concrete, climbed ladders, exhausting, back-breaking work. In the mid-1990s, he was part of a construction crew working on a palatial headquarters of a major American bank. Picking up some cement, he stood between two stacks of granite slabs that suddenly moved. Joe jumped in the air to try and avoid them, but two slabs crushed his legs. He was lucky to survive his extensive injuries, but could never go back to working on the sites. Instead, when his mobility had begun to improve a couple of years later, he enrolled in a photography postgrad at Hunter College, Manhattan. On the morning of Tuesday the 11th of September 2001, a brilliant blue sky day, Joe woke to the news that a plane had hit the North Tower of the Trade Centre. He was due in class. Instead, on instinct, he grabbed his 19-year-old Canon camera and headed to the subway, stopping at a bodega to buy rolls of 35mm film. Cheap film, a dollar a roll. Joe had $10 in his pocket. He bought 10 rolls. The brand name he remembers was Lucky. He caught the last train downtown before all subway traffic was stopped. Another plane had already hit the South Tower. When Joe emerged from the subway at Canal Street, it was a hellish scene at ground level. Dust-covered, bloodied people running north. A huge cloud of dark, impenetrable dust and ash rolled uptown. Tower 2 had collapsed, with countless people trapped inside, just 56 minutes after being hit. Joe walked south into the dust cloud towards the remaining burning North Tower, clicking and clicking his camera. As he paused by the Metropolitan Hotel on Chambers Street, a policeman yelled at Joe to get inside. Tower 1 was collapsing, and Joe was one of the few left in its path. There's a video clip showing him snapping away as the cloud rolled towards him. Daylight turned to night in a second. A hotel worker handed him a wet towel. Somehow I just kept working, he told me. I can't let the loss and heartbreak into my mind for now. I just have to show what has happened. He reached ground zero. Carnage and chaos lay in front of him. Seventy-foot-high tridents from the tower's facades, had embedded themselves in the West Side Highway. Hundreds of high-pitched chirps from firefighters' alarms, meaning a firefighter was not moving, permeated the thick air. Lone, dazed, dust-caked firefighters called out for their missing crew. Fire engines were upturned and burning. Filthy pools of water from sprinklers and fire hoses were mixing with a ten-inch deep dust carpet on the New York asphalt. Massive fallen steel columns were bent into unimaginable shapes. Joe stepped carefully. A news photographer, William Biggert, 
lay dead nearby, caught in the second collapse as he took his last photograph. After hours at the site and having run out of film, Joe retreated, leaving the rescue crews to their desperate bucket brigade searches. He dropped off his film rolls at the SEPA photo agency uptown and exhausted, traumatised, filthy, got back late to Queen's. On the 12th of September, Joe's photos were published around the world. He didn't care about fees or profile. He felt he had to return to document history. He ducked and weaved to Ground Zero, borrowing a yellow vest and a hard hat to what was now called the Pile, the centre of the chaos. He stayed for two days. But by Friday the 14th, Joe was done. The heartbreaking flyers with photos of missing people were everywhere. Has surgical scar on right forearm. Silver wedding band marked 1995. Has tattoo of butterfly. All the horror and human loss he had witnessed began to hit him. Joe left, vowing never to return. He went back to his studies. Until in June 2004, a call came from Dara, an Irish friend who worked for Larry Silverstein, the owner of the Trade Centre site, now 16 acres cleared of the debris and carnage. Would Joe come and photograph the laying of the granite cornerstone for the new One World Trade Centre, the Freedom Tower, that would rise there? This was different. Joe agreed tentatively, hoping it would help blot out his bad memories. The photographs were so good Joe was offered a full-time job photographing the reconstruction of the site. His builder's credentials gained him instant acceptance into a tight-knit gang of workers, the tough unionised sets of carpenters, ironworkers, concrete workers and scaffolders. A 2,000-strong workforce were its own United Nations, Polish, Italian, Mohawk Native Americans, specialised ironworkers, Irish, Puerto Ricans. Joe's stunning portraits of their heavy work Shoring up the 60-foot slurry wall to stop the Hudson River flooding the site and with it half of New York's subways are extraordinary. Scenes of men and women dwarfed by enormous machinery, a swinging crane 800 feet in the air, swarmed by hard-hatted men, roped on but hanging in mid-air. The furrowed, greasy, grime-streaked faces of workers at the end of a shift. With his Irish charm, his rangy, nimble frame, Joe had the ability to take intimate photographs without disrupting construction. He became known as the Mayor of the World Trade Centre, as his quiet presence among the workers was appreciated as they went along with their daily treacherous work. His portrait was published in a New York Times exhibition of World Trade Centre workers, his blue hard hat covered in 9-11 memorial stickers, a bead of sweat running down his face. Joe is still there, 17 years later, the chief photographer for Silverstein Properties. He still has plenty of work ahead, numbers two and five World Trade Centre skyscrapers and a performing arts centre will rise over the next six years. When I visited New York a few years ago, Joe took me around the emerging complex. With access all areas and waved on by cheery security guards, hey Joe, we took an elevator to an empty, barren, high floor of the then unopened four World Trade Centre. To the southwest, the Statue of Liberty with her raised torch. On the northwest side, the new One World Trade Centre rose majestically to 1776 feet. It was a poignant, privileged glimpse of a resurrected site. The complex remains a sacred place for those who work there. 
Joe's office overlooks the two reflecting pools built on the footprints of the original towers. The names of the 9-11 dead are etched into the surrounding bronze parapets of each deep pool. Joe walks by them every day. Now 30 years in New York, married to Ozioma and with a son Chad, Joe Woolhead from Clancy Road in Finglas is a New Yorker through and through. The World Trade Centre is in his blood. He shot three million photos of its resurrection. His panoramic and his intimate images of the changing site and those who rebuilt it are a testament to this quiet Dubliner with a keen eye. A photographer who captured the worst day at the Twin Towers, yet showed the best of what came next. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighbourhood. Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood. But I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line. Breakfast at Sartorelli's, a hot August day. Unlike the sleepy awakening of a Sunday at home, here in Varese, a town near Milan where I've been living a number of years now, the day of rest begins with bustle as customers clamour for seats outside the local pasticceria. They're loud, impatient and hungry. In fact, as the waiter brings me my cappuccino, he tells me there are no brioche left and that he fears the demanding crowds will eat him if he stands still too long. I laugh and ask him to bring me a bombolone, a doughnut filled with cream, showered with sugar, a little piece of heaven. Just then, I see a wee man enter the cafe linking the arm of his son, who gently guides him to a seat. I remind myself how funny it is I still use we for small, an expression I have carried from home, and there it is, that sudden pang of homesickness. The wee man's son is conspicuous in his polo t-shirt, the number 20 on the sleeve, and England written in capitals across the front. A decidedly brave look, given the result of the recent Euros final. Though he's definitely not English, I can see that he's too well-dressed to be anything but Italian. Years before, when I lived in Rome, there would be days I would have to take the bus in 35-degree heat, my clothes wringing wet from sweat, my hair dishevelled, my bag and sandals smothered in dust. I'd take comfort from the throngs of tired tourists sharing my plight, but then I'd look around and see the men and women of Rome impeccable, fresh, not a hair out of place, colour-coordinated in cool linens like some mocking maritime painting. I was like an overripe tomato that had burst in a shopping bag. The sun is looking in my direction. I'm reading Vasari's Lies of the Artist, Volume 1, or rather trying to, again. For some reason, I've never succeeded in finishing it. Maybe this time. There's always hope. I flourish my copy of Vasari, perhaps wishing to be noted for the intellectual company I keep. But the young man isn't looking at my book. He's looking at my football top. 
And I know that look. It's the double take the Milanese do when they look at my jersey because the red and black should mean it's the strip of AC Milan. But it's not. I translate the questions as I imagine them now going through his head. What club is this? What is this strange symbol? This red hand? The unusual form of the letter T in the middle with the words Tyrone, Fabrications and GAA. There's only its script, perhaps a different language. Chirone, Conte Iniel. I secretly enjoy watching him trying to assemble all this information, trying to arrive at an understanding. I take pleasure in the mystery I have become. This happens every time I wear my Tyrone jersey here. Far from the ken of the Italians would be the story of Shane O'Neill and his shrewd but ultimately silly act. In a race to be the first to claim the kingdom of Ulster, it is said he cut off his hand and threw it bloodied ashore. Even this story of the origin of the red hand of Ulster is one of a myriad, layers of myth and legend interlaced with historical fact and manipulated fiction. A story told and retold so much it takes on new life each time. I think of the hill of the O'Neill and Tully Hogg. The homesickness begins to grow. The older man studies the menu. He's in his Sunday best, a light grey suit, the knot of his lemon yellow tie done up in the style of yesteryear. The whole ensemble hangs awkwardly on his frail frame. I look down at his shoes and note the subtle shine and I'm back at home on a Sunday morning polishing my own shoes. My father waiting in the car, aggressively tooting the horn and ranting about the shame of being late even for 12.30 mass. The son orders their coffees and the wee man rubs his hands together. I think of my own father's hands, hands that are no more. I know I don't want to go down that road of memory, so I try to immerse myself in my book to lose myself in Michelangelo. I set myself a target to have a certain number of pages read before the match. Tyrone are playing today. Three years ago, my father and I watched them play. He, on the side of his bed, crippled by COPD and the fall that ended his independence, and me sitting in the armchair beside him. It brought back memories of exciting train trips to Dublin, Connolly Station, a sea of red and white. In the hordes of people, I felt his protective presence near me as we joined the procession to Crook Park where we stood side by side as Auran Naveen played. It was another of those rare shared moments between us, our gaze and hearts focused in the same direction, cheering on our county team. A shadow falls on the pages of my book and I lift my head to acknowledge the wee man and the son as they leave. Calcio Irlandese, la mia squadra, 
Irish soccer, my team, I explain, pointing to the jersey. The simplest of explanations. We all smile and they move on. The father seeks out the arm of his son, ever so tentatively, not wanting to make his need obvious. A tear slides down my cheek. I feel Tyrone will win today. When you're far away from the home you seem There's many a time by night and day Your heart will be sorely broken Please, holy God, my mother prays, can you arrange for Kerry or Limerick or Cork or Tipperary or Waterford to get to the All-Ireland Finals? Any team will do, we add helpfully as long as the followers arrive in Dublin through Kingsbridge Station. It's the 1940s. There aren't many cars around. Most of the GAA supporters travel to Dublin by train. My mother has recently taken over a small hotel, Noonan's, on Ormond Quay, and its fortunes are hugely dependent on the supporters arriving at Kingsbridge. More train lines will be added to Kingsbridge, now Houston, in the years to come. But for now, Munster is our best bet. From early summer, the intensity of my mother's pleading increases. She lights numerous candles to St Anthony's statue at St Michael and John's Church across the Liffey. She extends his brief beyond finding lost goods. Like a heavenly TD, he is urged to intercede with the man above to favour any county whose followers arrive through Kingsbridge Station. God help us, though, if the supporters are coming from the north or the northwest. They'll arrive through Westland Row or Amin Street Station, and my mother will rail against the heavens and especially St Anthony. When she finally calms down, she hurries over to the church and apologises to St Anthony's statue, lights a dozen candles and overpays with a half-crown in the box. Her upset is understandable. With the supporters diverted to the other side of the city, we would face a lean winter. Happily, St Anthony's intercession works most years. The lead-up to the big match could not be more tension-filled for the players themselves as for all of us at Noonan's Hotel. Every room is booked, then the overflow begins. Extra beds are borrowed, mattresses laid on floors, bodies slump over couches and armchairs. Long after we are dispatched to bed, I lie wide-eyed in the dark, listening to the commotion below stairs as the whole house vibrates with pre-match excitement until everyone grabs a few hours sleep before the place erupts again at dawn. The real business of the day is about to begin. Even as small children, we have our role. Dozens of sliced pans have to be buttered the night before and stacked neatly in deep tea chests. Extra trestle tables and benches are hired and spread with paper, cloths, cutlery and crockery. Ham and beef is sliced, plated and stacked. The buttered bread is retrieved from the tea chest 
piled high in small towers down the centre of the trestle tables. The gas geyser is ready with spluttering boiling water for the tea. With my mother as colonel-in-chief, we listen for the sound of approaching footsteps. In the distance, the left-right, left-right steps get stronger as the army of supporters advance along the quays. Nearly all of them men in their Sunday suits and good shoes. Most of them farmers. This, their one day off. They leave behind the women to take care of the milking. My mother's sandwich board outside the hotel gets results. Plain tea, one and six. Meat tea, four and six. Fast service. A queue forms. Pay in advance at the door. Blue ticket for plain tea, pink for meat tea. Move along, please. Don't block the hallway. Don't lose your ticket. The trestle tables quickly fill as our customers swing their legs over the benches. The precious pink tickets are exchanged for plates of cold meat. The buttered bread disappears as eager hands reach out. The backup bread stock runs low in the tea chest. Giant kettles of tea, milk already added, are moved from cup to cup. Like a scene from a speeded-up old movie, the girls rush from table to table, plonking down more clean cups, plates and cutlery, while shouting to the pantry for backup. It's vital to feed as many as possible, as quickly as possible, to make way for the next invasion, before the crowds all pass the door. And suddenly it's over. The last man to exit knocks over the bench in his hurry to leave. Nothing left but the wreckage. Before tackling the clear-up, the girls collapse onto the benches, kick off their shoes, light a cigarette and pour a cup of tea. My mother retires to the office, lights a sweet afton and turns up the radio. The ringing tones of Miholo hair rise above the Artane boys' band and the roar of the crowd from Croke Park. My mother balances her cigarette on the edge of the counter, wets her thumb to count the tickets. Thank you, Saint Anthony. Our food, our clothes and school fees are secure for the next year. My first encounter with Greece was as a 12-year-old in the classroom of Father Willie Murphy, our Greek and Latin teacher. The country we heard about was a troubled one, constantly at war, it seemed. Five years later, I left his class, having been hoisted many times into a standing position as he lifted me by the locks and reminded me that my knowledge of Greek verbs and wars was scanty at best. I never dreamed at that time that I'd ever visit the country. Its history was just another step along the road to the leaving cert, and its ancient language was one I struggled with right to the bitter end. But in its way, this is a love letter to Greece, and more particularly to the island of Idra, to its rocky shore, its stony beaches, its safe harbour, its monasteries and mountains, 
its spring flowers and summer heat, its winter winds and high seas. A love letter to all it is and was and will be. Over the past six years, we've been regular visitors to its welcoming shores. But I first stumbled across a mention of it in an interview with Leonard Cohen many years ago, at a time when a working holiday in London was the height of my travel experience. He talked about how it had offered him a home and a place to write in a house in the Four Corners district, an area above the harbour and the bustle of the town. It would be more than 40 years before I'd visit Four Corners, climb the several hundred steps away from the hubbub of the seafront, turn right at the little grocery shop that seems to stock everything and anything, up the narrow street to the house, just round the corner from the tiniest Greek Orthodox church I'd ever seen. The hope had been that we'd make another visit this year, in early September. But that won't be happening now. So I thought instead of telling the island face to face as we walked the long road to Kamini or climbed the wooded slopes of Mount Eros before stopping at the Prophet Elias Monastery for cold water in Lukumi, I thought I'd write these lines to let the island know I miss it and hope that we get to meet again. I miss the sight of Idra rising out of the warm blue Aegean as the ferry leaves the island of Poros behind leaves its noisy cars and scooters and sails on to the quieter shores where mules or shanks mare are the only forms of land transport available. And there, as we round the headland and catch the first sight of the town, are the art school, the museum and gallery, the ancient cannon guns mounted on the rocky outcrops that kept the island safe in other times. And further along the road to Mandraki is the former slaughterhouse, now a tiny home for summer exhibitions. And there's the windmill that featured in Sophia Loren's film Boy on a Dolphin. And there on the harbour walkway are the mules lined up to carry everything from tired travellers to bottled water to fridge freezers away from the boats to the houses lining the steep terraced streets. And tonight the lights will go on as darkness falls. Tourists will gather at Duskos Taverna, with its whitewashed tree under which Leonard Cohen and Marianne and Charmian Clift and George Johnson and Anthony Kingsmill and Allen Ginsberg sat and argued and sang and ate and drank into the small hours of another time. And local people will sit outside their houses as the heat becomes bearable, and children will run wild as children should in summertime and the town will come alive. And tomorrow, if we could be there, we'd walk the island road high above the Cobalt Sea, past the open-air Hydrama Theatre, past the tiny churches, past Vlichos Beach with its crystal waters, through the olive groves, round the old boatyard haunted by the ghost boats drawn up onto the sand. Turning inland, we'd follow the rough road, stopping to eat and drink in the shadow of the church of Agia Marina. Then, on along the track that finally evaporates like a midday puddle in Episcopi. The last time we left, late last summer, we looked back from the deck of the morning ferry and took in the fading sights of buildings and mountains and crooked roads and a community about to come awake and promised ourselves that we'd be back. 
The promise stands, but without the certainty of its ever being fulfilled, which is always the way with promises. What we call fate or destiny or chance so often come between the aspiration and the completion. But we live in hope, the best place to live right now. That ref was way off. It was a red card, a black. I'm in the village in Kilala, listening to the semi-final post-mortem. Then O'Shea coming into the altercation. What was he at? I show off my GAA credentials by saying it was McHale in the 96 Meath final all over again. I grew up in England under the pejorative label Plastic Paddy. While I accept the dilution of being second-generation Irish, in my heart and soul I am 100% Mayo. My people are Ballina, Ohamore, Kilkelly, Berawapna. My husband and I chose to rear our family in Kilala. When I look at the Atlantic from my kitchen window, or smell turf smoke on the damp air, or pass a middle-aged man on the street, and suspect I might have kissed him at a town hall disco when I was home in 1979 on holiday, I experience a deep sense of belonging. Most of the time, that sense of place resides in me as a feeling of tranquillity and joy. But when we win a semi-final, it starts to burn. And when we lose, it hurts. It all came alive for me in 96, the first and last time I went to a final in Croke Park. Up and down in a week to see Mayo lose, undeservedly, twice. I'm not over it yet. Twenty-five years later, I can only watch games at home with my husband, peeking at the screen through my fingers. My mother is worse again. She remembers Mayo winning in 1951 when she was 13, each final is a reminder of how much time has passed since that feeling of elation. My drag queen son cites the worst summer of his life as the one I made him do a cooler camp. But when we beat Dublin, he immediately posted a picture of himself on Instagram in full drag wearing the Mayo jersey. He'll be here for the final and will watch it with his grandmother comfort her 83-year-old heart if we lose again. And yet, that familiar loss is what seems to drive so many Mayo people. To hell or Connacht, it can be a bleak spot, a mournful mountainous landscape, dramatic and cruel, a lovely place to visit in the summer, but a hard enough place in winter. When you drive out along the bleak empty roads of Bangareris and see a long barine leading to a house nestling at the foot of a black mountain, a mayo flag flapping wildly on the gate, you feel the pride of still just being here. Not London, 
or Leeds or Montreal or Sydney, standing our ground is a win in itself. Mayo are fighters. Our game is straight and skillful. We have the physicality, but we don't always choose to use it. I sometimes feel we're the bridesmaids of the GAA. When we step down that aisle, everyone gasps at our grace and beauty. We keep showing up in all our finery year after year, often outshining the bride, but never getting the main prize. Some years, a sort of shuffling cynicism sets in. Here we go again. Secretly, we confess we're relieved to lose a semi, a year off from the stress, the disappointment. But not this year. This year will be different. The harshness of our landscape, the poorness of our land, is something we have endured, and I am struck when I visit the outposts of Belmullet and Bangareris, how many of my tribe, the children of emigrants, who watch their matches in Kilburn and Wilsdon, Leeds, Yorkshire, have chosen to live in Mayo. Or perhaps Mayo chooses us, because she knows we can handle it. Bad luck in sport is a trial, a test, a reason to support each other, a nod to the purgatory of our parents and grandparents who survived the ultimate losses of famine and emigration. Heritage reminding us we are still playing football because we are warriors, we are survivors, we don't give up, and when we do win, we will win big. The voices are raising in the pub. Will it be Kerry or Tyrone? It doesn't matter. We'll just have to beat them and that is that. Then somebody says, what would happen if we actually won? Sure, the whole county would close down. We all look down at our drinks, afraid to hold each other's eyes. It's a genuine concern. Would things ever be the same again? Sure, we might never get over ourselves. Offices would shut. People would go on the batter for weeks, months, years. The joy is just too huge to contemplate. But we will cross that bridge when we come to it. On this morning's selection of new writing, we heard The Mayor of the World Trade Centre by Helen O'Rahilly. Breakfast at Sartorelli's by Owen Pola Rouche. The Big Match by Aida Lennon. Then there was A Love Letter to Hydra by John McKenna. And the final piece this morning, Warriors of the West by Kate Kerrigan. The music this morning. First off... New York State of Mind by Billy Joel. A Storm McCree by Davy Stewart. Then we had Nocturne Number no. One in E flat major by John Field, 
played on piano by Elizabeth Joy Rowe. And finally, Zorba's Dance from the film Zorba the Greek by the late Mikas Theodorakis, whose death was announced this week. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinators are Carolyn Dempsey and William McCartney, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.